Well, just in the interest of full disclosure, Chris was supposed to preach this message tonight, and uh, when he realized that he was literally going to be preaching to the choir about coming to church on Wednesday night, he decided, Tyler, you need to preach this. Um, Interesting topic. So the topic Ken handed to me was the holy habit of the church. And that is a huge topic. Uh, habits, holy habits, the church, big topic. But the more I prayed about it, the more I thought about it, um, you got you to land somewhere. And Romans 12 is one of those texts for me that changed how I thought about the church. You know, and, and it's, it's interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the cookies on the lower shelf just right up here in the beginning. The summary of my message tonight, just so I am clear, and when I get into this, I don't get to babbling too much. The entire point of this message tonight is that it doesn't matter if you're standing behind this pulpit, and I cherish this pulpit, don't get me wrong, I cherish what it stands for, Versus standing behind the pizza serving line. When we stand before Christ in heaven, all Christ will see is our motives. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Let's pray. Father, I just count it such a privilege to be a member of the church. Father, you've chosen this body specifically to change me, to grow me, to challenge me. Father, you've chosen this church to give me a place to serve. But Father, it's more of a privilege to be of a, a member of your church, to be the co-heir of Christ. God, and I pray as we look at the scripture tonight that we keep it that simple. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So those of y'all that have been in Sunday school classes and stuff with me know that I need a whiteboard and I like moving around a lot. This is kind of, I feel like kind of chained down here. Um, but we'll do this as conventionally as we can, okay? And I just want to start by saying how exciting it is for a Wednesday night where we have this kind of turnout and this kind of enthusiasm. Last week was, felt like a revival to me. It was just so cool to see everybody here and to see everybody so excited about church. Um, let's look at Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. The title of this message is, The Holy Habit of Your Church Commitment. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as so to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body... And all the members do not have the same function. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ. And individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. In service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy With cheerfulness. Now, the problem of landing in Romans 12 is it's where do you start? But we're going to start tonight with point number one, which is think rightly of your commitment. Think rightly of your commitment. Paul tells us in the beginning, here in verse 1, to make sure that we know what we hear. Know what we hear. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans 
is intimidating. It is all exposition. It is all a truth and doctrine, the most beautiful, the most comprehensive, singular place where you can find the truths of salvation in one place. It is, it is a phenomenal book, and, and, and I'm excited for the day when Ken T. preaches through it, to be honest. It's going to be a neat day. The cross, our salvation, how I was saved. How many of you have been through Romans Road? Either teaching it or were saved through it. There's so much soteriology there. So much doctrine of salvation. It's just a beautiful thing. And so he winds up at the end of chapter 11 and he says, in a doxology, uh, uh, an ending praise, if you will, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the peak of Mount Everest, right there. Everything else is downhill in the sense that it's just going to gain momentum from here. You've got this huge amount of information and knowledge on being a Christian. These Roman believers, they needed to be girded up in knowledge to be strengthened in their lives as Christians. So in verse 1, as Paul and y'all, all of y'all know, that when it says therefore, you have to ask what it's there for, right? In light of all of these truths, of all of this doctrine and theology that Paul has laid before us in the first 11 chapters, you've got chapter 12 through 16 is all exhortation based on the previous exposition. And he says, Therefore, I urge you. And urging is a very interesting word. And uh, I didn't take Greek, I didn't take Hebrew, but I can read lots of commentaries. (laughs) And there is this, in some translations you see the word beseech. We don't use that word much anymore. Beseech, I beseech you, right? Therefore, I beseech you. You don't know what to do with that, do you? And he is, he is telling us that as the Holy Spirit is using me in inspiration, listen to what I have to say. In light of all we've talked about in this great body of truth in the first 11 chapters, listen to what I have to say here. That's the urge. That is the, as the Holy Spirit is using me to inspire Scripture... Listen to what I have to say. And then he immediately qualifies it. He says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, right? And we know that that means Christians. We know what that means. But the most profound thing about that statement is that he was talking to the Roman Christians 2,000 years ago. And he's talking to us. We're the brethren today. Now, there is nothing different in the inheritance that they received in Christ 2,000 years ago versus the inheritance we're going to receive the day we see Jesus Christ face to face. It's universal. There is an equality. Look at uh, Hebrews 2.11. Interesting verse. Hebrews 2.11 says, For he who both sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. We are co-heirs with Christ. And the more I mention that word, the more I dwell on that word, the more more I pray over that word. That is a very humbling idea. There is, there is a, a, an equaling... When you sit there and think that you are co-heirs with Christ, you're co-heirs with Paul, you're co-heirs with Ken, um, you're co-heirs with my wife, uh, you're co-heirs with Billy, but yet 
there is 2,000 years of continuous brotherhood, sisterhood, family. It's one equal generation in the church. There's no hierarchy of inheritance. We all get the same inheritance. That's eternity with Christ. And when we look at that big picture of history of the church, you know, one of the things that we have to distinguish is, and I mentioned it a minute ago, was the idea of the local church. We are members of this body. We have agreed and mutually agreed and covenanted with each other in this body for God's purposes and Christ's purposes. Christ is the head of this church, right? He's the groom of this church. And yet we are part of something a great deal bigger. We are part of the universal church. We're part of the, 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 church, the churches that are being planted in Peru. And we're part of the churches that are being planted in Albania. Those are our brothers and sisters. And the, the, as Americans, I think particularly challenging, we have a, 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 um, a tendency to look forwards and backwards and sideways with this hierarchy of, of uh, that because we're the American church, we've got it all together. But when we stand toe-to-toe, side-by-side around the throne of God in heaven, That'll be wood, hay, and stubble. So Paul says, know what you hear. Verse 1. The Holy Spirit is using him to inspire this scripture. And this scripture is inspired to the church of Christ. Then he goes on. He wants us to know how we're supposed to sacrifice. Know how you sacrifice. He goes on to say... Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. There's a, we're going to talk about the sacrifice first, then we'll go back to the mercies of God. A living and holy sacrifice. This is a direct comparison to the dead, bloody sacrifices that were happening 30 years earlier, right? And probably to some degree were still going on. Um, a living sacrifice was a stark contrast to them because things had changed. There was one perfect bloody sacrifice that changed everything. The father did not spare his own son. And so Paul says that we're to be a living sacrifice. How are we going to be a living sacrifice? What does that mean? Brethren, brother, what does that mean? As he urges us to be a living sacrifice. Go to Romans 6, 6, just a few pages to the left. Romans 6, 6, he says, (laughs) it's another one of those texts you don't know where to start and you don't know where to stop, but we're just going to read 6 here. I'd like to read more. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. A living sacrifice is one that is active and physical and moving One that has been given new life, if you will. A spiritual life. There is the the physical, literal sense of that, though. It is a living sacrifice. We're not just talking about the heartbeat, right? We're talking about the feet on the ground. We're talking about the moving. We're talking about the doing. We're talking about the hard work of the church. A living sacrifice. Sacrifice. But he also qualifies it with holy sacrifice. Stay right there in Romans 6 and just go to verse 12. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. I think one of the best sermons I ever heard in this church was Adam Tyson preaching on the mortification of sin. 
That's a fun topic. But if I'm going to be a holy sacrifice as a co-heir in Christ, I have to know how to be holy. A living and holy sacrifice needs to understand obedience and purity of heart. Flip over to uh, Mark 12, 33. One of the challenges of standing behind this pulpit is you feel like you have to get to the text before everybody else. Mark 12, 33. And to love him with all their heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one neighbor as itself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. That purity of heart. When you are presenting yourself, when, you're, when you are um, sacrificing yourself for the church itself. That purity of heart. What you love becomes apparent. What do you love in that moment? When there's a need and, and, and you feel obligated to fill it, how does your heart react to it? Is it a living and holy reaction? Sam Shoemaker, who all I know is he preached on the East Coast somewhere about 100 years ago. No, I really don't know anything about him. But he said, to be a Christian means to give as much of myself as I can to as much of Jesus Christ as I know. A living and holy sacrifice. How much of Jesus Christ do you know? Um, I like 1 Peter 2.5 in this context too. First Peter 2.5. He says, you also as living stone. Yep, that's it. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right? Christ's purposes are being built on us because through the work of the Holy Spirit we are being made holy and He can use us as living servants. Since all things are for His glory, we must... Respond by offering ourselves for that purpose. An interesting term at the end of Romans 12. Back to Romans 12. At that first verse he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. When you, by the mercies of God, let me back up to that for just a second. By the mercies of God, goes back to you considering yourself and everything that he has just said in the first 11 verses. By the first 11 verses, have you, first 11 chapters of Romans, excuse me, would you consider everything that you've read and everything that you've understood in that letter by the mercy of God would you consider your sacrifice to God a reasonable conclusion lots of debate of this term spiritual service what the, what this word means but there's two general ideas one is that spiritually right the spiritual service that the service I'm doing is spiritual of nature Right, But it is, also has the idea of being reasonable or a logical conclusion. In light of the first 11 chapters of everything Paul's written, is your life as a living and holy sacrifice, is that a reasonable conclusion to what you believe? Self-examining. And it's all based on divine riches and graces bestowed. What's God done? What has God done in your life? You know, one of the neatest things I would love to do, but you can't standing behind this pulpit, is you would like to go to calling names. And I've seen God do this and this person, and God do this and this person. But most importantly, you can stand up here and say what God has done in your life. Right? 
the divine mercies and graces that have been bestowed upon me? I will tell you that that is a reasonable conclusion to understanding the first 11 chapters of Romans. What God has asked me to do is a reasonable conclusion. So firstly, we're going to think rightly of our church commitment. Next, as we move into verses 2, we're going to think rightly of ourselves. So think rightly of yourself. So the first thing we need to do is we need to know our influences. Verse 2, he goes on to say, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now that logically follows the reasonable conclusion he just came to. What's controlling you? What's the reasonable response? If the reasonable response is, if the reasonable response is, I'm going to dedicate my life as a living and holy sacrifice, then why haven't I? Paul says, and do not be conformed to this world. Right? There are influences, profound influences around us. And as Christians, we are by nature not a conforming people. We are non-conformists. The schemes of this passing age, the schemes of the devil, the schemes of Satan, everything that we're bombarded with every day, it weighs on you. It drags you. It keeps you from um, making the true logical conclusion, the spiritual service of worship. My spiritual service should be worship. But the things of the world draw me away. Al Mohler says that our, our society is like a pressure cooker. Just all of these influences just pinned up on us with heat and steam and, and a confining pressure to accept and to be conformed as the world would have us be. We're the church. We're nonconformist. And I would say now, in the last five years, in, in our very culture, we're probably feeling that like our generation has never felt it before. I think we do a little, a little history of the church. We're not facing this in even a fractional amount compared to the rest of the history of the church. But it's eye-opening to me. He says, do not be conformed to the world, church, brethren, because if you are, there's no way that you can do, be the church. That spiritual service of worship. You know, the, the letter was written to the Roman church. And they're struggling. Are they going to be Romans? Or are they going to be Christians? Or how do I be a Roman and be a Christian at the same time? Can anybody identify with that? Right? You can't. You have to be a Christian who happens to live in Rome. Or you, in our case, you have to be a Christian that happens to live in Montgomery. Or the Woodlands. Grace Tall. <laughs> right? We, we, we can't make that distinction. We're Christians first. Other thing, challenging thing, he goes on to say there, he says, and be, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now that, that comparison of... of, of not conforming, but being transformed. That means that we have to learn to think critically. And culturally speaking, we're not trained to do that. Um, my girls and, and Hardy have been exposed to some logic and some stuff that I can't even follow. But they can think critically. And I appreciate the freedom to teach them that stuff. And God bless my wife because I don't understand it. But I was 35 before anyone asked me to think critically about something. Everything else was just a regurgitation of facts and knowledge. And frankly lies for the most part. We have to learn as believers to think critically. We have to learn as a church... To understand the difference between what the world is putting us in in the pressure cooker versus what God and the Holy Spirit is convicting us of every day as we're in the Word and we're in His church and we're to be the church. It takes critical thought. 
Should I do this? Should I not do that? Should I think this? Should I not think that? Is it okay with this Christian liberty? I know all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. That's where we're at every day. But in conclusion, in understanding our influences, to know your influences, can you think for yourself under the Holy Spirit's conviction? You look at the jump ahead just a little bit to to verse 3 there. He uses the word sound judgment. Can the Holy Spirit be utilized through you as a living and holy sacrifice in sound judgment? That's what God wants. He wants you to make decisions that honor Him. Sometimes those decisions are complicated. But every decision you make either honors Him or dishonors Him. Primarily because of your motives. So you have to know what your influence are. You have to know who changes you. We know who changes us. The Holy Spirit changes us. In verse 2 he says, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? We understand the inspiration of Scripture. We understand that, that the preached word builds us up, edifies us. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. The interesting verse. Now, if there's one word I don't want you to forget tonight, it's co-heir. I've already said it like 19 times. This is 20. Co-heir, 21. 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. How are we changed? How are we made Christ-like? How do we live as co-heirs with Christ? Through the Holy Spirit. This idea that transformed closely ties with the idea of the transfiguration. And that's seeing the light of the God, the light of Father through Christ himself. When you're being transformed in a biblical way, when your mind is being renewed to the scriptures, it's like the transfiguration in some sense. The light of Christ shines through you. You become that living and holy sacrifice. God uses you in His church in very unique ways. And one last um, reference on knowing who changes you. The sanctification of the church as a whole is the work of the Holy Spirit also. Look at uh, 1 Peter 1-2. A letter to the church. And he's talking to to those who are chosen, per verse 1. And he says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Right? By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The church is sanctified universally by the Holy Spirit. We also have to know why we're changed. At the end of verse 2, he goes on to say, So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the idea of proving. This is an idea of tested value, right? That you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, just just stop for a second and say, Tyler, I, I don't know if I stand before God and say, God, have I proven what's good and acceptable and perfect? Have I been that living and holy sacrifice? It's a pretty intimidating question. That idea seasons the idea of worship at the end of verse 1. That we worship what we value. We, we, we bring glory and honor to the king we bring glory and honor to the throne of god because we value it so when we're proving what's good and valuable and perfect 
at the end of verse 2. It's a demonstration of where your worship is. In word and in deed. Look at 1 John 2.17. That's a blunt way of saying it, quite honestly. 1 John 2.17. He says, The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. A life of worship. Living in holy sacrifice. Spiritual service. That reasonable conclusion. What renewal has to take place in your will, in your heart, to prove what the will of God is. There's so much here for time. We've got we to fly a little bit at 30,000 feet. But we have to know why we're changed. Paul's renewed mind, proving what is good and acceptable and perfect, he's talking about also as well, and we'll mention this in a minute, this full stewardship of the gifts God has given you. Full stewardship. So when you're a steward of something, somebody else has put you in charge of something valuable. And in my life, have I been a good steward of what God's given me? Have, has worship come from my life? Has God been glorified because I've taken those gifts and I've proven what is good and acceptable and perfect? Another way of saying it is, does your witness match your testimony? I think one of the neatest things on our website is our baptism videos. Have any of y'all have watched those? I don't know how many, you know, I've missed several baptisms, and I, I love watching the videos of them. I love hearing the testimonies. But it's no fun sitting in an elders meeting when you realize most likely that testimony was worthless. When you hear that someone's fallen away, when you hear that someone has been taken down by the lion, if you will. That's a hard thing to hear. When your witness doesn't match your testimony. It also goes to motive. When you take your own estimation of yourself, what do you, how do you compare yourself? You compare yourself to Ken. You compare yourself to Chris Steyer. You compare yourself to Kelly. compare yourself to Misty Smith. All of which are valuable role models. But there's only one motive of comparison. That's Christ alone. Christ's words as a co-heir with Christ. The firstborn among many. Right? Our motive of how we evaluate ourselves is critical here. This isn't subjective feelings. But the Holy Spirit has uniquely, exactly, and fully gifted you to fulfill your role in the body. Have you proven what is good and acceptable and perfect? Thirdly, think rightly of others in the church body. Verses 4 and 5. I'm sorry. I skipped something here. For through the grace given to me, verse 3, to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God is allotted to each a measure of faith. That measure of faith is the idea of stewardship. What have you done with it? Right? What have you done with the gifts God's given you? Now we can move on. Verse 4. Think rightly of others in the church body. Because we can think rightly of ourselves, the previous verses, we can think rightly of others. So how does that work? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to know unity. Look at verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, verse 5, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. John 15, 5 tells us we're of the same vine. We all grow out of the same vine. 2 Peter 1, 4. Look at that. Back to the right again. 2 Peter 1, 4. 
tells us that for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption corruption that is in the world by lust that same nature John 17:21 through 23 over and over and over again Christ prays for our unity he prays for our unity. Tom's sermon a couple years ago on John 17 was, was profound. John 17, 21 through 23. But it's a simple idea. It's a simple analogy. Here he is talking about the members of the body. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of another. Unity, this is an analogy of, of physiology. The body cannot function without all its parts. And everybody has a part to play in this church. Everybody has a part to play in the church universal. One of the neatest things that, that is so profound is to watch how God works through the chain, right? Um... And the best example I could think of this was, was Peru, right? Ken stands here and preaches faithfully God's word. Draws a like-minded group of believers whose, whose church has, has, has become a mission more than a church. They decide to join us. Out of that common heart, out of that common goal, we get exposed to their church in the sense that... what. What their body has been doing, which is going and, and doing gospel storytelling in Peru. And the chain goes to the missionaries they support down there. David and David and Pedro and, and Brandon and those guys down there. And from there, they're going out to the river and they're meeting guys like Sebastian and Eber. And within a couple of months from now... All of the work through the, those chains of relationships, that unified work of chains of relationships, they're probably going to confirm elders down there in a couple months. A new church, a new body will be born through the work of the members of the church. It's a fascinating sense of unity. And everybody, the church universal has a role and a responsibility. Chris Steyer believes with all of his heart that we have as much to do with his ministry there as he does. You understand that? Chris Steyer believes that we have as much to do with his ministry in Albania as he does. Chris is following his gifts, being obedient to his gifts. We have a role to Chris, but more importantly, we have a role to the church. The church universal. We have, we have individual responsibilities to that. And we corporately have responsibilities to that. But it's because of our unity as co-heirs with Christ. Believers, as believers, we're united with the risen life of Christ. What more, literally, what more could two people have in common than where they're going to spend eternity? My marriage will mean nothing standing in front of Christ. Lakeside Bible Church will mean nothing standing in front of Christ, at least the relationships. The people I know in the cattle business or the people that, that I've met on missions in, in, in the airport, whatever. The commonality is an eternal bond. It's a unique bond. It's a tight bond. It's a unifying bond that cannot be broken. And we need to cherish those. You know, Luke fifteen seven is is, and you can go a couple different places uh, to look at this. <laughs> but I just want you to see something right here. Luke fifteen seven. And you've heard this sermon preached, this parable preached, the lost sheep which plays to the lost coin, which plays to the prodigal son. 
I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That is an eternal bond. Can you imagine sitting in heaven and, and when a young person comes to Christ at, at summer camp, at Camp Revive, God willing, and the saints in heaven drop everything that they're doing in a unified voice to praise the King of kings and Lord of lords over bringing salvation to that one kid. It's a unified idea. This is unity. We know unity as a church. We have to know diversity. God's glory is manifested in the diversity from which he receives worship. I've already talked about missions. I'll, I'll move on. Um... When we measure ourselves by the standard of Christ, diversity reigns. We'll be ourselves. Um, I want you to understand the idea of maximized uniqueness. The kingdom is utilized under the renewal of the Holy Spirit by maximized uniqueness. There is efficiency in the kingdom through diversity. All of our gifts, all of our efforts are diversity. That's a grace to let others be themselves as well. Boyce says that when the Spirit of God is free to work in the church, there's diversity. But lastly, here in verse 5, we also have to know mutuality. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. I can't go to all these verses, but let's just say it this way. If you hurt, I hurt. If I rejoice, you rejoice. If I have a need, if, well, if I have a need, you feel it. If you have a need, I feel it. Right? James 5.16, that's the one verse we'll use here, James 5.16. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You know, another physiological analogy. The body heals itself, right? When one part of the body is sick, another part of the body sacrifices to heal it. When one part of the body is hurting, another part of the body sends, I don't know, what is it, endorphins or something to go relieve the pain in the other part of the body. Right? When the hand is cut off, the marrow sends platelets to go stop the bleeding. Right? The body heals itself. One of the, the, it's just the idea that the healthy parts serve the sick parts. One of the most profound things that Ken Ramey has ever said from this pulpit is he's just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. That's easy. I get that. I understand that mutuality. Lastly, we need to think about the church's gifts. We need to think about, we need to think rightly about the church's gifts. Verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. If service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And guys, I would have loved to preach to verse 21, but I can't. All of us have to be good stewards. And all of us, 1 Peter 4.10 talks about the manifold grace of God. How many car nuts do we have in here? All right? What's a manifold? A manifold equally mixes and distributes. Right? So your exhaust manifold takes the exhaust from several different pistons and puts them in one spot to leave the engine. Or your intake manifold mixes air and gas, equally mixes them up and distributes them where it goes. Right? 
the manifold grace of God across the church in regards to gifts. Now the head knows what is good for the body. And if you look at... uh, I don't think we have time to, to spend First Peter 4.10, but let's go there just real quick. I'm sorry. Mike Britton told me it had to be brief. First Peter 4.10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as a good steward in the manifold grace of God. Now, everyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ sitting here this evening has been gifted by God. Undeniable. We're not going to argue it. We go to Scripture, 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 Scripture. It talks about the Holy Spirit and His role in changing your heart. But this idea in 1 Peter 4.10 is, is, is also the idea, that manifold idea is also the idea of diversity. Each of you, God God has such vast designs for these gifts. Vast, vast, vast. I think the challenge is, is we get pigeonholed. We get ourselves pigeonholed. Now, rightly, when there's work to be done in the church, we need to roll up our sleeves and do it. But so many of us think we can't do this or we can't do that or I'm not right for this or I'm not right for that. Have you tried? Have you looked into it? Have you made yourself available? We have to exercise them accordingly, according to Romans 12.6. We have to exercise those gifts accordingly. We can't neglect, ignore, compare, or overstate our gifts. You know, one of the neatest examples of that is, is, is our deacons. You know, our deacons have proven to me time and time and time and t- again that the love of Christ is as equally reflected in them as it is our pastors. It's just a different gift. It's a different role. When you received this this exercise it accordingly according to the proportion in his faith when you received that proportional grace it was because Christ gave it in a measure suited to his good purposes when he gave you those gifts he gave it to you for his purposes and he gave it to you in the exact amount the exact proportion for his design you know one of the other texts I could have preached was was Ephesians 4 and it wouldn't have been any briefer um, Ephesians 4, 4 through 7. Ephesians 4, 4 through 7. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The head knows what is good for the body. Christ is the head of this church. We're the bride of Christ. Christ knows what's good for this body. And he wouldn't have given you that gift if he didn't also give you the ability to use it and to glorify himself through it. Stick around there in Ephesians 4 and go down to verse 14. And we'll go on to the head is glorified through the body. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, here we go, this anatomy of physiology again, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of 
each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now again, we could have just stayed here and just preached this text. But the body glorifies the head, or the head is glorified through the body, if you will. We are being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. According to the proper working of each individual part and the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Christ's love is perfected through the church. Um, all of you are gifted with a measure of grace. And all of you are in some measure lacking the improvement of grace. If you look back at Romans 12... The way you serve should reflect, A, what you've been given in the gift of grace, and B, what you, ref- what you lack in the improvement of grace. The one proves that you were vitally needed by the church, and the other proves that the church is vitally needed by you. How bad do you need the church? I desperately need the church. How bad does the church need you? Desperately. There's grace to be given both ways. I'm not going to preach on the, on the topic of prophecy, but prophecy here in this context is basically the proclamation of inspired truth. We believe in a closed canon. Um, and and uh, proclamation of that inspired truth is limited to only to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Now, verses 7 and 8 is talking about that proportion of faith, right? That, that exercising them accordingly. The guy that preaches, he has to preach to everything God gave him. That's the proportion. He has to use that gift fully and functionally and devotionally. But you can move on down the list. Um, to those that uh, um, give with liberality. Right? They should never give begrudgingly, but always generously, a single motive and open hearted. What well, leaders in the church, those who lead, have no one to whom they are accountable, and hence they must be aware of laziness. Leaders of the church have to be at the helm. A prime example of that is Exxon Valdez. Who was at the helm? Nobody. Right? Leadership. By nature, that proportion of faith requires diligence. You have to be there. Or you could take the, immerse, the, the, the example he gives here of mercy. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Those who show mercy to the hurting must not grow weary, but to contender, continue to minister with gladness. If God's given you the gift of mercy, right? can you continue to do it with gladness? That cheerfulness, that open-handedness. So what if I'm, uh, a little bit of application here, I'll wrap this up. What if I'm ignorant of my spiritual gifts? What do I do? You know, all of y'all took the, the, the survey in our membership class. Um, some of y'all have read these books like Why Church Matters by Josh Harris or Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church. Within the church, you have a job to do. What if you don't know what that job is? What are you supposed to do? First thing you're supposed to do is engage in some spiritual conversation. If you're not talking about Christ, you will not know how to serve Him. If all you're talking about in the hall is football or a recipe, had to be even-handed there, guys. Um, you're not, you're, you're not going to develop your spiritual gifts if you're not engaging in spiritual conversations. I'd say the next way is discipleship. Who's in your kitchen? Who's talking to you about your role in the church? Who's talking to you about um, when you come up with an idea and you say, you know, I think maybe I ought to to serve in that good news club. I think I could get away Tuesday afternoons. 
Who are you holding yourself accountable to spiritually? Or have you isolated yourself and say, you know, on this mind, and, and this is the, goes back to the verse 1 deal, right? In this hand, you're saying, well, I guess I ought to try to serve that spiritual gifts thing and, and try the Good News Club. Then you jump over here and say, well, it's just not going to fit my schedule Tuesday. Then you go back over here, right? You need to hold yourself, you need to have that conversation with someone other than yourself if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are. Go bounce it off somebody that you trust spiritually. Put your hand to the plow. No idle hands. Bluntly, idle hands in the church are the fruit of pride. If if you're saying you can't find a job in the church, idle hands are not good. Find something to do. The other idea you can take is have a missional approach to serving. Right? Who can I tell about Jesus? You can go to Peru. You can go to the news, new, Good News Club. You can go to the retirement homes. You can start a home Bible study. Limitless opportunities to be the church. God will honor your continued obedience. And <laughs> through that continued obedience, He will show you your gifts. And when you find your gifts in the church, He will give you such joy and such reward. So what should your church commitment look like what should your church commitment look like your church commitment should be a personal and habitual desire to be the church a personal and habitual desire to be the church you join the church and you decide that that uh Things aren't as easy to plug into as you would have hoped, right? That it's hard to find a place to serve, right? Put your hand to the plow. Don't look back. Do something. Serve the king. But that personal and habitual desire should not go away. You should be feeding the desire, that habitual desire to be the church. Who do you want to tell about Christ? Who do you want to love like Christ? As you utilize what the Holy Spirit's given you, you reflect the head. You reflect Christ. The body takes on a personality like Christ. The body takes on a strength like Christ. The body takes on a love like Christ. And the body takes on a spirit like Christ. That's what we want Lakeside Bible Church to be. When we pray for our country, which I've been convicted to do lately, what's the church's role in that? Right? Does it have the strength of Christ? Does it have the love of Christ? Does it have the spirit like Christ? You know, it's, uh, I will tell you though, just in closing, that the highlight of my week, every week, is Wednesday morning sitting in the elders meeting and listening to all the examples of you guys being the church. The way y'all minister to each other. It is so encouraging. We have such a great church. And I joke about Ken sent me to preach to the choir. Here's the most faithful group on Wednesday night, you know. And I'm here preaching to you about your church commitment. But it is so encouraging to, to know that if, if, if Mike's got a problem, Tom's going to go talk to him. Right? Or if I've got a problem, Mike's going to come talk to me. Right? Or if somebody's hurting or somebody has a need, if there's surgery or whatever it is, the body is serving each other. And every morning, every Wednesday morning, that's all we hear about. We hear about the profound ways the counseling ministry is serving. We hear about all the great things that the kids' ministry is doing. We hear great things about the worship. We hear, I mean, it's just one after another, after another, after another, after another of how you guys are serving in the church. And I just want to let you know, Billy quoted Hebrews 13, 17 a while ago. And I will tell you, it is no burden to be a shepherd of this church. So let's pray and we'll wrap this up. Father, thank you for the privilege. Um, Thank you that uh, it's your Holy Spirit that changes lives and not me.
God, I pray that you would help me to be obedient to the very thing that we talked about tonight. That you would help me to be that living and holy sacrifice. That it would only be my logical conclusion based on what you have done for me. God, I thank you for how you've used people to change my life. And I thank you for the very people that imparted the gospel to me. God, and I thank you for the people that impart their lives in me. We love you and we thank you for your holy word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.